Get in on the action and make your bet with Sports Interaction. Summer is heating up with baseball. Can the Jays make a run at the division? Oh, <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> uh, hey, but you can bet before the game, whichever way you think. Live and in play uh, in all your favorite teams and hot dog contests. Woo! Woo! Sportsinteraction.com slash SDPN or download the app to get started. It's 19 plus. And what do you have to do, Steve? Please play responsibly. This is Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wilde. Powered by Sports Interaction. Want to bet? So we're supposed to be on hiatus, everyone. Uh, But there is something out there that is just so compelling. I felt like after talking to Adam and Jesse that we were going to do a bonus episode appended to season two. So here we are. Uh, Our special guest today to bring us Back into the studios on summer hiatus is a gentleman who is a TV writer and producer. He's written for Law and Order, Jackie Chan Adventures, MacGyver, and Magnum PI, among many other shows. A Writers Guild of America West board member from 2018 to 2022, and a formerly uh, on the WGA negotiation committee. Let's welcome, I guess you know what we're going to talk about. Let's welcome <laughs> David Slack to Agent Provocateur. Thanks so much. How are you, David? Adam, hi. How are you? Thanks for, I didn't re- realize you were dusting off uh, the, or you were coming out of hiatus for this. That's that's very kind of you and, and I appreciate it. Well, well we appreciate you making time. Yeah. <laughs> we appreciate you making time uh, to come on and uh, and speak to us about certainly something that's very significant going on in your life. You're on strike. I'm on strike. My wife is on strike. She's in SAG-AFTRA. Um, the dogs as yet are not on strike, but they, I think they're having meetings. So we'll see. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting time. It's definitely, I, you know, it's not great, um, but it's mm-hmm. the only thing that, we can do to save the middle class of both our professions. So um, here we are, you know, 170,000 strong between the 11,000 members of the Writers Guild and 160,000 of SAG-AFTRA. And it's historic. We haven't done this since 1960. Uh, It was the last time uh, any version of the two unions um, were on strike at the same time. And when that uh, when that happened, we got uh, just little things like residuals in TV and our pension and health plans. So, um, you know, I, I don't like striking, but strikes work. And it's unfortunate that the bosses chose this path, but here we are. So, Can you tell us what the key issues are uh, that led both unions to go out on strike? Sure. Um, it, it's... It's complicated when you get into like the, you know, down the issues, there's, you know, specific things, particularly, you know, SAG has so many different professions within it. So there's, there's concerns for, you know, for dancers and singers and stunt performers and background performers. And within the screenwriting world, we have concerns for screenwriters, which is what we call people who write movies versus mini rooms in TV, uh, which is a whole thing and then comedy variety writers uh this is you know late night talk shows and shows like that they don't even get basic protections for streaming services so there are a lot of individual issues but they all fall under one very simple umbrella which is that when you do this work that 
makes these companies collectively 30 billion in profits every year, you should be able to pay your bills. That's it. You should be able to pay your bills. You should be able to pay your bills, pay your rent, pay your mortgage, save a little something on the side, be able to, you know, save for your kid's school, raise a family, all of that stuff. We're middle-class unions. You know, there, the, there's a lot of attention paid to the very visible members, whether you're talking about, you know, um, some of the famous writers, showrunners out there, or, you know, obviously, you know, when Meryl Streep signs a letter telling you that, you know, your union should go on strike, that carries some weight, you know? So there are people at the upper tiers who make, you know, fabulous sums of money, which they deserve. But for most of us, for most of the rank and file, we're the middle class, you know, and and for, you know, 80 years or so, you've been able to have a middle class life working in Hollywood, um, never necessarily getting famous, always trying, but, you know, but providing quality work to the studios that employ us and getting enough in return to uh, pay your bills and save up and participate somewhat in the success of this industry that has thrived, you know, for decades and is still thriving, by the way. So that's really what this is about. And and there are, you know, there the, the other big issue, I would say, that that is on the table for both unions. It's a bigger issue for actors, I think, than it is for writers at this point. But artificial intelligence, which is, you know, going to be an issue for and in some ways has been an issue for all labor in this country. You know, you go back to the UAW and the robots that replaced a lot of, you know, workers on factory assembly lines. This is a continuation right. of that process. Um, for writers, uh, those machines right now can't really do what we do, but that wouldn't stop the studios from maybe having it do a really bad version and then paying us a lot less to fix it. Um, than, than we would get paid if we just did the good version for them the first time. Um, and for actors, the problem is here now. There are contracts, you know, when background performers, you know, the people who walk around in the background and make the place look real, like a busy coffee shop or a busy street, their contract, uh, they're being asked to sign contracts that will let the company scan them and then use virtual background them again and again and again. Um in perpetuity throughout the universe. So for no compensation, for no compensation or for a one-time payment. And outside of SAG-AFTRA's contract, a, a friend of mine who uh, does audiobooks, uh, that's her primary, I mean, she's an actress as well and a SAG-AFTRA member, but she does audiobooks. She's had her voice stolen twice by two separate AI companies Whoa. who it's good, clean audio. They used it to train their AI and friends called her and they were like, this is, this is you. And, you know, they reach out to these companies and then they reach out again with lawyers and the companies are like, you don't own your voice. You can't copyright the sound of your own voice, which is just chilling, huh. you know, and, and it, it speaks to uh, the things that we're all grappling with, you know, which is we're dealing with um, corporations uh, and people running those corporations who will do literally anything that we don't stop them from doing. Um, you know, they will steal everything that's not nailed down. Uh, so it, it's, you know, the, a contract for a union is about nailing down stuff so they can't steal it. Um, so yeah, so, but that's, I would say the overarching issue is just, we just want to save our middle class. You know, we want to save the ability, you know, I've heard stories about writers working on shows. There was a writer who wrote for Handmaid's Tale who, uh, was then driving Lyft. 
uh, because working on this huge hit show, household name, everybody knows Handmaid's Tale, didn't pay enough for that writer to pay his bills through a year. You know, I think I think it was a guy. I can't remember. Um, but so, you know, the with with the move to streaming over the last 20 years, things that used to pay very well now pay, you know, less and less, worse and worse. Um, and the studios are more effectively able to, you know, hide the money that they're making or claim that they're not making any money at all. Um, and, you know, if they've made mistakes in their business, that's their problem. Um, at the end of the day, this is a business that a huge amount of investment has poured into over the last 20 years and a huge amount of revenue is coming out. So um, it seems like you have the money to pay your workers. If you have the money to pay David Zaslav $250 million, you know, I think you got the money to pay your workers. And, and Bob Iger. Yeah, and Bob and, Iger. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's ridiculous. It's just, you know, Zaslav's salary is so bloated. It's the, you know, the, the easy target, but yeah, no, all of them, millions and millions of dollars. And Iger has the, you know, the gall to sit there on a golf course at a retreat for billionaires that he flew to in a private jet and talk about how we're not being realistic um, by asking for basic protections and fair pay. Okay. You know, so for, for years, just one thing, Adam, for years, David, um, in all of the negotiations that were going on between uh professional sports franchise owners and the unions like MLBPA, NHLPA, MBPA, NFLPA, the owners would come to the table every negotiation cycle crying poverty. And and we we're not making any we're losing a fortune. And they did it famously in in the NHL in 2004-05 in the lead up to what turned out to be a full season lockout. Oh. NHL owners at the time, we lost $273 million the year before. And what they notoriously did in each of these negotiations is they refused to open their books. Oh yeah. It was a non-issue. And uh, what what the NHL did in in just in the lead up to 04 is they pres they hired a guy, a guy named Arthur Lovett, big name guy who was the former chairman of the SEC. And he was commissioned to put together the Levitt report where the teams voluntarily put together summaries of of their revenue and expenses he didn't audit any team he didn't audit any of the reports given to him and he then issued this detailed report summarized nhl owners collectively lost 273 million dollars and in his conclusions unless unless the players agree to a salary cap the nhl will completely go out of business in x number of years yeah. and and it just seems to me the parallels um between what has gone on in the sports world and what's going on right now 
uh, with the actors and writers. There's just incredible parallels. Labor is labor is labor. I, you know, I was telling you, I just listened to the episode you did with Keith Olbermann recently. And like the story he's telling, it's the same story. And it's, and it, by the way, it's the same shit the Teamsters deal with, with, with UPS or the, the train workers deal with. It's, you know, the bosses, whether they pass it around or just tell it to each other, or it's just something they all arrive at independently because this is how our brains work. They all do the same stuff, you know, the same, well, your leaders are crazy and this would break the business. It's in 2017, in our 2017 negotiation where we took a strike authorization vote, but didn't have to strike and got, you know, some, you know, good contributions that helped put our health plan back, back in a good place. Um, in the presentations for that, uh, our, our meetings with the AMPTP, I wasn't, I wasn't in that negotiation. I was in the 2020 negotiation, which was surreal. But uh, they were in person, but it's a very regimented process. Nobody speaks out of turn. It's very staid and Robert's rules of order professional. They gave a presentation talking about how they, they the studios, who we knew at the time were making $64 million a year in profit, um, or billion dollars a year in profit, uh, how they didn't have any money. And in their presentation, in the PowerPoint, they actually put in a little clip art picture of a sad guy with his pockets turned out. Like (laughs) Billy Ray, who wrote Captain Phillips and a bunch of other amazing movies, uh, laughed out loud. (laughs) But they they don't stop. You know, Bob Iger's sitting there on the golf course saying, like, if you understood how dire the situation was, and, and the thing is, the bitch of it is, it works. It works. That kind of stuff scares our members. You know, people are afraid. You know, the, the, the thing, I don't think it's a secret, the advantage that management has in negotiating with, you know, hockey players or, you know, other people in sports or, you know, writers or actors is that we love what we do right. and we want to do it for a living very, very badly. So, you know, to think that we would be unreasonable uh, is kind of crazy because like, you know, when I get to do my job, I'm living a dream. You know, this is something that I wanted from the time I was a kid and I worked very hard to get it and I love doing it. I, you know, absolutely just joy that this brings me. So, but I can't pay the mortgage with joy. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and when the companies take, you know, a, a show that I worked on or helped create or added to, and they make money, profound amounts of money, uh, in perpetuity throughout the universe and all media now existing or hereafter devised, which is what it says in every single contract that we're required to sign. It's only right that I get a reasonable and fair share of that. And, and that's the situation that we've had. One of the big issues for, you know, for us, for the actors, it was an issue for the directors, um, was streaming residuals. You know, right. we had a system in broadcast television where you'd, you know, you'd pay us to create it. We'd get a, a fee. And then every time you reused it, we got a reasonable percentage of that fee again. I think it was, you know, two thirds, three quarters of, of what my script fee was. So when I wrote on Law and Order, you know, and granted, we were like NBC's spackle, right? Like if a show didn't work out, just put a law and order in there. So, you know, you know, I've also worked on shows that never reran. But when you're on a show that works that way for the network, that, you know, that they are using in that way and they're getting, they're selling ads on it, they're making money on it. 
it was only fair that we got that payment. And, you know, one law and order would rerun five times. So I would make my script fee and then I'd make, you know, whatever percentage of my script fee five more times. And I've been lucky that I've been on some shows that, that work that way. They, to move over into, you know, streaming, look at a show like Stranger Things, which is an enormous, you know, hit people have, you know, how many people have signed up for Netflix and agreed to pay a monthly fee, which by the way, we were given law and order, law and order away for free, right? You could just turn on your TV and watch it. People signed up and said, yes, I will pay you every month. Just put this in my veins, please. They haven't, the people who've created that show, the actors, the, the, the writers, they haven't seen that kind of benefit from success that a television show under, under the old broadcast model worked. And, and the studios would probably say, well, it's a different business model. And that's not my problem. You know, you guys created that business model. You may have made some mistakes, but at the end of the day, you're all, even like the, the apps that are failing, the streamers that are failing, have millions and millions of subscribers paying a monthly fee. And now you're adding an ad tier. And we know that their accounting practices are really shady. Google um, Bones Profits lawsuit, or look at Ed Solomon's tweets about how all these years later, the original Men in Black movie has still lost money. Somehow it's still lost money and Ed's not do anything of his, I mean, they just, they cook the books, they make it up. They, you know, they, they find clever ways that are probably legal, but um, clever ways to, you know, to hide this stuff. And that's kind of what's going on here. But for us, nothing has changed. I, you know, I sit at my computer, I dream something that, you know, the people at the top don't know how to dream and uh, then go through the whole process of making it a reality, turn it into a script. Then I, you know, help produce the episodes and all of that stuff. Uh, It's very specialized skills. Um, So I'm doing the same job. They're still making money. But me, writers like me, actors like my wife, aren't getting paid uh, what they used to pay us. And the only thing that's really changed is the mode of delivery. You know, airwaves versus a wire. I want to ask you about the streaming thing, David, because, you know, that has come up again and again. And the argument I keep hearing, uh, and this is a studio-centric argument, which is, um, well, if the studios have to disclose... How many people watch their show? Because I'm assuming any sort of agreement on revenue share would have to then require disclosure of how many people actually watched a show. Like we get the publicized numbers from Stranger Things or Game of Thrones on HBO or, you know, whatever. It's like, oh, over 10 million. But we never actually know the real number. Yeah. Um, and I wondered if, you know, the, the prophecy is that if Netflix, Disney Plus, you name the streamer, it doesn't matter had to disclose those numbers on every single episode of every single thing that the general public might find out that they aren't perhaps as watched as um, the companies are making them out to be because that stuff isn't generally publicly publicly available um, and that might hurt the stock price. And then what they, they, they'll tell you is that the uh, company itself, the streamer, uh, will then produce less content because they'll have less money because they've taken such a big stock loss, and that would put people in your position out of business. How do you respond to that slippery slope style argument that I've just just hacked my way through on? <laughs> um, I think it's hedge fund bullshit. 
honestly. Like it's, you know, I, I don't make a stock price, you know, and I understand that the, you know, the realities are that, you know, with the hedge fundification of Hollywood, they care more about their stock price than they do about making an excellent product that, and it's to the point that they're cutting costs so much that they're eating their seed corn. They're not letting us train the next generation of showrunners. They're not letting us create. We want to sell them the next generation of IP, but I guarantee you if the next George Lucas walked in with the next Star Wars, that person would be asked, hey, can you make this part of the Star Wars universe? They're, they won't let us give them the things that we need to make the business sustainable. And it's all because of this focus on day-to-day -day fluctuations in share price. And I frankly think there's a lot more money, you know, that's a uh, fluctuating stock price is a short con. Um, I don't want to con anybody at all. I want to make a great quality product that people love. And, and to the whole thing of releasing their numbers, I, I think that probably works for them both ways, right? They have things that are huge hits that everybody's watching that, and yeah. that would, you know, support our argument that like, yeah, see, shouldn't you give us some of what this brings you. And then they have things that they want people to think are hits that nobody's watching. Um, so it right. works for them coming and going. But from about, let's say, 1947 until about, you know, still now, they have existed in an ecosystem where Nielsen estimated pretty accurately the ratings of the shows that they put out in the public. And do you know what happened to their business over that time period? It thrived. It absolutely thrived. So if this is some, you know, like, I, I just don't think it's I part of it is I think the tech mindset that's come in with with Netflix and Apple, you know, and everybody's building a streaming app. So you hire people from tech for that. And I think data is closely guarded because who knows how we could crunch that and what we could find out. But uh, and by the way, none of the Writers Guild's proposals require them to share that data. That's not actually something that the WGA is seeking. We have, I believe our, our uh, thing is called a tiered fixed. Uh, so it just goes off their subscriber tiers. Um, okay. But I don't think that, but I, SAG is seeking success-based residuals is my understanding. And I just don't think that's the existential threat to these companies that, you know, they think it is. And uh, I, I think that if their stock, look, Netflix, you know, took a huge, stock hit when they had a bad earnings report. I don't know how many quarters ago, year and a half, maybe. They're doing fine. They're doing just fine, better than fine. You know, so it's it's a little bit, you know, the thing that you're talking about, about like if they, you know, they say they lost, you know, uh, you know, $10 million one year and it's really, no, they just didn't make $10 million. So, you know, it's, I, I don't know. Like, I just don't give a shit about their stock price. Like, I, I, I want to make their stock price by go up by making good products that everybody wants to see. But if you're going to wring your hands about, you know, and look, th there, are, there are ways to do this stuff where it's somewhat confidential. You know, we, in, in 2007, 2008, last time the WGA was on strike, we actually won the right to audit the studio's books. Now, that audit is subject to extreme confidentiality. Like we can't release any of the information that uh, we're we see in the audit, but we can at least make sure that on the macro level, they're not lying to us um, and hiding profits. So there are ways in a union negotiation um, to satisfy what workers are asking for without fundamentally damaging 
um, the company's interests, which nobody wants to do. Um, you know, and if they say that's, you know, would be fundamentally damaging, I, I don't know that I believe them, but that's, you know, that's a reasonable claim and that's a conversation to have, but it's not a conversation to have when they won't sit down with any of us. So that's the other part is just like, you know, we're outside They're your not gates, talking guys. Yeah. 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 No, they haven't spoken to the WGA, uh, to my knowledge, uh, or expressed any interest to negotiate with us since we went on strike uh, on March 1st. And they've used other unions as kind of a, you know, an excuse. Oh, we're too busy talking to the DGA. We can't negotiate with you. Now we're too busy talking to SAG after. I don't know what their excuse is this week because SAG's out there with us. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know what they're... <laughs> How they justify saying they can only do one thing at a time. I routinely do like eight things at a time. That's my job. Um, but they, I guess, can only talk to one union at a time. So now, now, David, I've lived through some very long lockouts in in the hockey world, and one of the things that we confronted very early on is the uh, psychological warfare that takes place behind the scenes from the league and from the owners. So one common tactic is uh, after a long period of time of no talks at all, uh, let's put out the word that now we're ready to talk. And here are the players, or in your case, the writers and the actors, who one of the topics, and it's just human nature, what do you hear? What's going on? Any updates? You're on strike. Players locked out, not making any money, losing paychecks. What's the latest? Anything happening? And it's very hard for people when they are on strike or locked out to grasp why there are no talks going on. Right. So the other side will put out, yeah, we're interested in getting together and talking. And that leads people to think, aha, there's a breakthrough coming. Hopes get raised. Everybody gets excited. They haven't even met yet, but all of a sudden expectations get raised. And my experience is that in many ways, that's just a a form of warfare put out there to bring you up and then crash you back down again. Yeah. Nope. Same. They, they do all that stuff and they were, they were very successful at it in 2007, 2008. That was, that was very hard. We really, you know, cause the one difference is that um, the news for our industry, the trade publications, you know, Hollywood reporter variety um, uh, they're, you know, every single ad in those, uh, publications is paid for by the studios. So right. who, whose side editorially do you think they're going to be on in a situation like this? And in the, in the last strike, it was just Nikki Fink and her newly launched site deadline that was getting relatively, you know, uh, pretty accurate uh, stuff out to, um, uh, out to writers, but it was, we didn't have social media in the way that we have now. And we didn't have, um, we have a captain system where we have writers who are captains who communicate with other members. So we, we've gotten very, very good at, um, getting accurate communication to our members and getting our members to tell us what they're thinking, feeling and hearing, um, so that we can communicate that up to leadership. 
um, we didn't have a lot of that stuff back then. And it was, it was very, very hard. You know, now, uh, you know, Nikki Fink, may she rest in peace, has passed away. Deadline is now owned by Penske Media, which also owns uh, Hollywood Reporter and Variety. Literally all three papers in our industry are owned by the same dude. Um, and uh, but that be interesting. The, the auto racing Penske, by the way. Maybe. Same Penske? <laughs> Maybe. <Okay>. I don't know. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Let's say, yeah. Um, okay. But uh, but. You know, we have spent 20 years thereabouts working to educate our membership on union literacy. And one of the big things of union literacy is the stuff you were just talking about, which is the same tactics that they use, regardless of whether you're writing screenplays or cutting pipe on a factory line, you know, which is your leaders are crazy. Um, they chose this, uh, you know, uh, you're going to lose. You'll be worse off with a strike than you would be uh, with a negotiation if you had just been reasonable. Uh, You're you losing to, money. You'll never get back. You'll never get right. back. Um, you, you need to take things off the table, and that, that's that's a, a big one. And I, you know, had a by and large, the writers are like, we're all sick of walking a picket line. But everybody I talk to is like, nah, yeah, fuck it, let's do it. As long as we we're in this far, let's let's we got to win it. You know, like people are determined, and we're on like. I think today's like day 86 or something. We went a hundred days last time and it felt like landing the planes with the wings on, on fire, you know, like we were, we got through it, but it was, it was rough. I'm not hearing that. And part of it is SAG joined us, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And that was like, you know, it was like day 74 for me, but it felt like day one. Cause now we got all these people and they're happy and they're not, you know, they're all, great looking and, you know, like it's just really boys <laughs> your spirits. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're determined and we're holding together and it's just at the end of the day, you know, we have to, cause mm -hmm. you know, you should be able to do this job and pay your bills. And it seems like what the studios want to create is a system that not only would be bad for us, it would be bad for them. You know, right. just as, you know, loggers replant forests and farmers will rotate their crops and, you know, let fields lie fallow. They had a system. We together had created a system where you could work in this business and make enough while you were working and enough off residual payments that you could afford to live within easy driving distance of the studios. And sometimes in L.A., that means 20 miles, but still you know, ready to work at a no moment's notice. And every moment that you're not working, you're trying to come up with a new product to sell them. That was good for us. And it was good for them. And it created just as, like the loggers with the trees and the farmers with the fields. It created an ecosystem. The mentality now, as we've moved from studio bosses like Robert Evans, who love movies, to studio bosses like David Zasloff, who love money and tax write-offs, um, they're killing that ecosystem and they kind of want this just to be gig work. You get, you know, and I've seen them make that argument uh, and try to get away with things where, you know, like uh, every once in a while, a writer who's uh, like a script coordinator, uh, but they want to be a writer and they get to write a script uh, and they get paid their script fee for writing their script. And I, I talked to two people this was happening to a writer and a, a writer's assistant and a script coordinator. And the studio's argument was, no, while you're getting your script fee, we're not paying you to do the other job that you're still doing um, because your script fee should count as your pay 
And I was like, no, 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 no. That script fee under my union contract counts for the script. The other job, which by the way, is also under a union contract counts for that job. But that's, that's the mentality is just, they want to, well, I mean, they'd pay us nothing if they could. Right. Absolutely. They'd pay us nothing if they could. And, and frequently, sometimes they get away with that, you know, um, you know, whether it's actors doing self-tape auditions where you're buying, you know, equipment like this, um, uh, you know, and a backdrop and a lighting kit and all that stuff, or it's, you know, I mean, I create television shows and they don't all go to air and I create them on spec. I'm doing that for free. I don't get paid to right. do that. I only get paid when I sell it to them. So a lot, you know, and in features, free work is a huge problem. You know, you'll, you'll have writers do, you know, five, six, seven, 10, 11 drafts, endless rewrites, getting paid for one step, but they don't want to step away from the project. So, you know, they, they want something for nothing. And the union is here because it's very hard as an individual to say, go fuck yourself. And also please pay me because I need to feed my family. Um, the union's here to stand up for all of us. Adam? Well, I, I mean, in, in listening to that, you know, I, I can feel the, uh, uh, the frustration. And I think what happens in these negotiations so much, David, is that um, m waters get muddied. So, mm -hmm. so I think people ultimately want to know, you know, like the average guy just like me who just really likes to yeah, watch yeah. shows, you know, what do you want? Like, let's let's use this platform to be clear about it. What do you what are you guys after? Well, we've had two years of six percent plus inflation. You know, um, uh, we need raises commensurate with that. And to frankly make up for, you know, the, the money lost during it. We need a streaming residual system that uh, that works in a way similar to how TV residuals work that, you know, because a lot of my job and I, boy, I've had to work on myself psychologically to cope with this. A lot of my job is being unemployed. You know, I lost my job during the strike. The show I was writing for Magnum PI got canceled because the, the contracts were up on the actors and the studio didn't want to, you know, pay to renew them. So, you know, I don't have, and no one in my career has the sort of certainty of like, well, I'm going to go to this office and I'm going to go to this office every day for, you know, 15, 20, 30 years, and then I'm going to watch and I'm going to sit in a chair. Like, you know, I'm, it's constant hustle. Um, and I need to be making enough when I'm working to be able to support myself to look for the next job because that's just the way it works. Shows come and go. And it, it used to be seasonal in television. But anyway, um, so we need residuals that allow us to, uh, participate in the success of the shows that we make and um, to be able to, you know, sustain us during lean times, which which is only fair considering that the companies are always making more off of what we create, a product they can't make themselves. Um, uh, and then we need protections from changes in technology, um, you know, and some protections around uh, the way that certain business practices are going on, whether you're talking about self-tape auditions for the actors or the abuses of free writing in features. So the, like to boil it, boil it down, we need a fair deal on compensation, both initial comp and our residual compensation. And we need some workplace protections around the ways that we work so that it's, uh, you know, in some cases it is genuine physical safety for like stunt performers, but for the most part, it's, it's a sort of, you know, um, uh, 
economic and quality of life safety that we're not working, you know, years sometimes for free um, uh, on stuff. So that's, you know, and it's none of it will break the bank at all. You know, they, the, again, the companies collectively make $30 billion in profit a year. The WGA's total ask uh, is an increase of, uh, I think it was 454 million over three years or something like th these are, you know, pennies on the dollar. It would be 2% of their profits or 0.2% of their revenues. Or two um, CEOs. Yeah. 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 No, right. if you want to do it in Zaslov's, we're asking two Zaslov's. Um, you know, Mag is asking, I, I think, like, Zaslov's, but they're a much bigger union. So, no, but it's genuinely, I mean, and, and by the way, also, um, another way to put it is Barbie's ob opening weekend, just the opening weekend, that movie's going to go on and make money again in perpetuity throughout the universe in all media now existing or hereafter devised. Just Barbie's opening weekend would have covered the entire WGA contract wow. that, that we're asking for. Now, Just obviously that money goes to, you know, PL and, you know, all the marketing stuff and, you know, Margot Robbie, I don't think worked for free. You know, it's not that that movie didn't have costs, but in terms of their ability to get a return on their investment, you know, a lot of movies don't work out. A lot of shows don't work out, but dollar for dollar there, it's very hard to find an investment better than a successful TV show or a successful movie. And the proof's in the pudding. There are a lot of people who have become billionaires off of this stuff. Um, and they wouldn't still be in this business if it wasn't incredibly, incredibly lucrative. I mean, we're literally making shit up and selling it to people. That's what I do. I literally just sit here and think of lies. I write them down, try to make them sound as true as I can. And that makes money. It's one of the only industries where there's no raw materials to mine. You know, you just need the workers who know how to mine them. Um, and what we're asking for is reasonable. So, you know, and by the way, it's worked for them. It's worked for them for, you know, 80, 90, 100 years. Like, you know, yeah. but... It's, so the, know, the the studios, like the David, the table doesn't want to pay, doesn't want to, you know, you pay a fair share of the check, you know, right. <laughs> like, right. The, the studios and the streamers have gotten together and they form what's called an alliance and they're known as the uh, AMPTP. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about them? Because it's interesting that the streamers have been putting the studios allegedly slowly out of business and changing their entire business model. Yet here they are sitting at the table together as so-called partners. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, the, the AMPTP is not new. It's existed um, in one form or another for decades. Um, uh, I believe the current incarnation, I want to say 1974, um, but I might be wrong, somewhere in the 70s. And that was when the Association of Motion Picture Producers and the Association of Television Producers merged, um, if, if I've got this right. I believe like last time we were on strike uh, together, SAG and the, the WGA, and SAG hadn't merged with AFRA, AFTRA, it's a whole thing. Um, but I believe the WGA was on strike against both the Motion Picture Producers Association and the Association of Television Producer, Producers, and I think SAG 
uh, just went on strike against the motion picture producers. So, you know, back then when there were, and sometimes in the really, really distant past, we would negotiate with one studio at a time. And that let us kind of whipsaw them. You know, we'd be able to go and extract some concessions from Disney and then go over to Fox and say, well, Disney gave us this. So what are you going to give us? And and that worked out pretty well for, for the union. Now Disney and Fox are the same company. Um, and, you know, the, the, the studios negotiate together. And what that let them do when they started negotiating as one in the 70s is, you know, it used to be that WGA, SAG and DGA would negotiate together and we would deal with the studios individually. Now they negotiate together and they have been dealing with us individually. And that's let them whipsaw the unions. The DGA historically has gone in early for the last three or four decades and got. And they just did it again. They just, they just did it again. And I'm happy for them if they got a deal that they're happy with. But, and, and a lot of this stuff, there was the guy who was the head of the AMPTP before Carol Lombardini was a man named Nick Counter. Um, and he was a very shrewd negotiator. And after a series of strikes in the 80s, um, and it wasn't just him, but uh, they were able to successfully sell a number of myths to people. One, you already mentioned that the, you know, the losses inflicted on all parties in a strike or a lockout can never be recouped. Um, which is just absolute horseshit. I, I don't know what writers lost in the 1960 strike, but I cannot put a price on my pension and health plans, um, you know, and that's mm. me times, you know, there's 11,000 of us now, it was around 7,000 20 years ago, but that's thousands and thousands of writers over generations. I, I think that's worth something. I think that's worth the, you know, uh, I forget how many weeks they were out in 1960. Uh, another myth that they put out there is that deadline bargaining puts too much pressure on things and it's best to go in early in a calm environment and kind of work things out um, because, of course, they don't want us negotiating them to deadline because that puts pressure on them to actually do something. Um, Alex, and we you, have a, you have a very famous saying about that. What do you say about deadlines? Yeah, uh, they clarify the negotiation. They clarify the mind. Nothing happens until you have a deadline. Look, as a writer, I can tell you that's the truth. I, I remember Boyle's gas law in chemistry class. I, I always joke that like it's the the gas expands to fill all volume. Script's the same way, man. If I got three weeks to do that script, couldn't be done in less than three weeks. If I got three day, days to do the same script, I will have you a draft by Monday morning. Like it's you know deadlines. Deadlines work. Um, you know, and then another. But that. But that myth worked on us for a while in the 90s the wga acceded to uh or consented to this thing called the contract adjustment committee that we didn't even have a formal negotiation we would just go and talking about how this really good contract just needs you know some little tweaks here and and we lost a lot in that process mm. um and then the, the other big myth that nick counter and other people put out there is that artists aren't capable of negotiating for themselves that we really need industry insiders in other words their friends um, who really know how the business works to settle things for us. And that, that happened too. Um, so anyway, I'm getting off course, but what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I was talking about the, uh, the AMPTP and the studios oh, yeah. and the streamers yeah. Yeah. And, and how their interests don't well, necessarily look, align. They're brutally competitive with each other. Brutally. Exactly. You know, and Netflix has at a operating, I think at a pretty significant loss initially gotten all of them to jump head first into streaming with business plans that I don't think were better thought out than just like Netflix is doing it. You know, like <laughs> I, I really don't know how much they, they 
thought through how they were going to make money. Um, and uh, I think there's plenty of money to be made. I, I think, you know, probably if you ask me, I think stuff goes towards an ad supported model that's worked really well. And, you know, see also social media, right? Uh, Elon Musk, genius that he is, to tries to charge people $8 a month to use the service. That's not how that works, dude. The, you know, you you give the service away for free and then you sell the eyeballs. That's right. how it's always worked. And they're We're creating out. your content and Most, you want us to pay $8 a month exactly. for the privilege of giving you our great content. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. it's, 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 and it's, but the streaming model has been somewhat similar. Like, I, I mean, not that people won't pay a premium for good television that worked for HBO for many years and it's working for, you know, a lot of the streamers. But at the end of the day, to really have, perpetual growth, which is what I think, you know, the hedge fund mentality wants, not just not just good profits, not just good income, but perpetual growth. Well, there's 340 million Americans. And even if all of them, including the babies, all sign up individually for these services, you cap out. You can't grow beyond a certain point. The only way to grow is to keep raising your prices, at which point you're going to start losing subscribers. Right. You switch over to an ad supported yeah. model. Well, advertising costs can always go up and the bigger a hit something is, the more you can charge for it, which would be a reason to release your data, by the way, you know, so there's, you know, there's a model to, you know, for these guys to make money, but they, they are, you know, very, uh, very fierce competitors. And yet they all sit in a room and are united in their desire to grind the people who make the only product they sell. Um, and I think that just shows how afraid they are, you know, at the end of the day, they know in their core that they don't know how to sit down in front of a computer and write a scene that would make somebody laugh or make somebody cry. They don't know like actors do how to bear your soul with a camera an inch or two from your face. Like some of those close-up shots, the camera's right here, you know, and there's people doing stuff off screen. They don't know how to do that. You know, and they certainly don't know how to look like some of these actors, you know, so <laughs> they don't know how to do any of that stuff. And, and that drives them nuts. You know, for, for them, I think this is like, imagine if you owned a paper mill and all of a sudden the trees started arguing with you about how many of them you could chip and turn into paper. Um, but we're not trees. You know, we're human beings. We have lives. We have families. So, you know. Here we are. What would be easier? What would be easier to replace actors and writers with AI or executives with AI? Oh, yeah, I've, I've talked about this one a lot. Honestly, <laughs> like, uh, you know, a CEO's job is just an optimization algorithm. And those have been around for a while, you know, yep. um, and, and a, it's not inevitable. It won't be long before some board realizes that they will save money, you know, with a AI performing the CEO's task. And then they'll be confronted with the awkward thing that like, oh, the board could also be AI. Um, you know, you could uh, name you could name it after Zasloff, the yeah. Zasloff algorithm. Zasbot five thousand. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but you know, actors there there you know there's some real danger there of people being able to realistically you know we've all seen deep fakes and stuff realistically represent their likeness. But actors aren't just a likeness. They're a performance, you know, right. what they're providing. And, and I, I think it will be quite a while. I mean, and you can, you know, Robert Zemeckis has been trying to do versions of this on and off, you know, for years with the Beowulf movie or Polar Express. 
you know, what you're essentially talking about is an animated film and mm -hmm. they work for years on that. So right now with existing technology, it is so much cheaper to put actors in front of a camera, even if everything behind the actor is fake, which on, you know, shows like Mandalorian, most of it, most of it's a digitally created environment. And that too, by the way, that's putting talented set designers and, and prop masters, you know, and set decorators out of work. Um, so they're, you know, they're going to try to replace us. Um, as far as writing goes, I think by the time you've got an artificial intelligence that could do what I do, that could actually come up with a story that is meaningful and that people can relate to in their lives and that, you know, it can make you laugh and make you cry and, you know, feel something. I, I think at that point you're talking about an artificial general intelligence. And I know a little bit about this because I've worked on a show about artificial intelligence. If you get an artificial general intelligence, that's going to be able to figure out how to improve itself. And then it's going to do that pretty quickly. And sometime in the next, like, I don't know, 45 minutes to two weeks, you're going to have an artificial super intelligence. And at that point, copyright law is the least of your worries. and You should just <laughs> yeah. be trying to hide the nukes. So um, like I, you know, I, and, and I think, but I think it speaks to something really fundamental because, you know, Teamsters are going to be dealing with this with self-driving cars, even though I think they're, you know, farther off than Elon Musk would like you to believe because um, according to him, they got here in 2014. Um, uh, we have to decide as a society, what's going to be best for us, all of us, an economy where people have jobs and there is competition and we can build lives and we can take care of ourselves and each other like we've always had, or mm -hmm. a system where a very few robber barons at the top control the machines that do everything for everybody. And the rest of us are either broke or on some sort of universal basic income. And every 10, 15, 20 years, we rise up, cut those guys' heads off, and then there's new guys. Um, you know, uh, I, I'll take the former in a heartbeat. Um, right. And I yeah. think the only reason that there are some people who might want the latter is because they're not thinking about the guillotine part. You know, that, I mean, this, this is inevitable. Like whenever one group gets too much power, that's not sustainable, um, you know? So I'd much rather that we as a society decide to put some reasonable limits on what labor we're going to let machines take from us, um, you know? Because I get it, it saves money, saves time, but not when you factor in the revolution, <laughs> you know? like right. There's right. some real expenses to land and capital when that stuff happens. Not that I'm, you know, uh, making any kind of threats or anything. It's just history, you know, and that's what happens. So, right. um, but yeah, I, th I think I, if I was a CEO, I'd be worried about AI, you know, <laughs> um, there's, and, and it, the truth is, I think we should all be worried about it. Cause I, I, I think there are people who are investing a lot of time and money into trying to figure out how to make people with jobs that they like and are good at unable to do those jobs anymore. And I think that's fundamentally shitty. And I think the people who are doing that are bad people and they should yep. stop. <laughs> Talking about bad people. Talk to me about uh, tree trimming. Oh God. Oh God. The tree trimming. Well, there's the tree trimming. There's the, the Radford gate, which we finally today was the first day of picketing at the Radford I, gate that has I saw that. The Radford yeah, okay. Studios owned by a uh, 
a private equity real estate firm. I, I can't remember their name. I wish I could. Um, but they, so they're like, we're not part of your AMPTP. You can't even pick it here. Um, and then after we're like, no, labor law says we can. They're like, well, all our gates are neutral gates. And they put everybody at one on the back side of the lot. So that's been going on uh, at Universal. Uh, they suddenly decided to do nonstop construction all around their studio that involved ripping up all of the sidewalks and blocking the walk, don't walk signs. This is how maturely they've, you know, they've handled this. And, and then on the other side of the, because the universal lot's huge, like, you know, in New England, it would be a state. Um, <laughs> uh, on the, not really, but um, on the far side of it at, uh, at the Barham Gate, uh, there are these trees that, that where it's just where we were setting up our stuff. And when it's 95 degrees outside and you can only pick it till noon because it's so hot that literally people start fainting. We've been dealing with that. Um, those trees were really great. Uh, and so then they, uh, show up one day and the trees have just been cut back. Uh, and they said, Oh, this was the annual. Oh, it's Google it. Like the, the pictures are, you know, it's, I've had haircuts like that. Like, uh, it's like the trees joined the military. Um, they're just cut back to like the bare branches. Um, so they won't provide shade anymore. And the studio put out a thing saying, no, this is just an annual thing that we do for the health of the trees every year. And within like 15 minutes, somebody's like that you didn't do it last year or the year before. And by the way, now's, and then arborists start weighing in. Now's not the time of year that you turn. In fact, the way these trees got trimmed might actually have killed them. Um, so, uh, anyway, all of that to say, uh, at Radford, uh, after there was a, an article about it in the news uh, about them, you know, forcing us to picket at one dangerous gate on the back with no sun, they're like, oh, we'd love to have you come picket at the front gate and the, uh, over at the Barham Gate of Universal by the trees after, you know, they got exposed for trying to lie about, you know, how they cut the trees back to nothing just to be dicks to both us and the trees. Um, they, uh, they turned up with tents saying like, Oh, here, here are these tents for you. So it's just, it's, it's a really ham fisted kind of, you know, like there, there was one day that like within three hours or like over the course of about five hours, they did three really dumb things. They, oh yeah, they put out that they were bringing in uh, Ari Emanuel and Brian Lord to help with the SAG negotiation, which, you know, having helped lead a labor uh, uh, collective action about the way Ari Emanuel and Brian Lord uh, ran their business. We did what we called the agency campaign where we changed the way agents did business because they were, they were taking huge payments directly from our employers and, that was affecting how well they negotiated for us. So bringing wow. in Ari and Brian, like not a great idea. <laughs> and they, then they put out that they were also demanding that federal mediators um, come in. And then the article dropped uh, about how uh, it was somebody high ranking at the studios. I, I don't know who, but said that they're just going to hold out till we start losing our houses. And they'll call that a cruel, but necessary uh, evil. Um, uh all that in one afternoon, and this was right before SAG went on strike. It was I. I told my therapist, it, it's like they shit the bed. They got up, went in another room, and got in that bed and shit that too. Then they got in their car and drove to the mattress store. Like it was just the, It's crazy because these are you know big companies, but on the PR front, they've been you know not that they haven't landed a few punches, but they've been relatively hapless. Um, and it's embarrassing. And I think it also just shows that you know their position's pretty indefensible. You know, what, what, what seems to happen, David, in, in my experience, is that 
their their natural state is acting as bullies yeah. who never get questioned for anything they ever do. Yeah. And and they just cannot process effectively and strategically what happens when they get challenged with the facts, when they get challenged with the truth or a strong group of people on the other side that they happen to need to be successful, stand up for their rights. And, and, and that's when their, their natural state of being bullies, like we're, we're going to wait. This is our plan. And, and somebody's going to say this anonymously into the media because they think this is actually going to help them. And make well, them sympathetic. It, it blew up in their faces. Oh, yeah. We're not going to negotiate. The reason why we're not meeting and trying to settle this is we're going to wait until the writers start losing their homes until they start getting evicted. And when there's enough blood on the streets sufficient for our liking, then we're going to agree to meet and we'll settle this on our terms. Sorry, this is horrible, but we're all on board for this. And this is what we're doing. Oh my God. No. And somebody immediately uh, said, ha jokes on them. None of us can afford houses. Um, (laughs) I I do have a house and I have a mortgage and I, you know, I, I knew this was probably coming. So I'm like have savings, but um, genuinely, like uh, a huge, huge cohort of the Writers Guild hasn't made enough working as a writer to, you know, we've still got rent and stuff, but a lot of us haven't been able, you know, between the housing market in LA and how little we get paid. Um, so, you know, but it, it's, it, and supposedly uh, a bunch of the studio bosses got on a Zoom with each other either that night or the next morning and were screaming at each other about who had given that lose their houses interview. Um, and then of course there was the infamous Ron Perlman video, um, which I, I've, I've had the pleasure of working with Ron uh, for f- four years on uh, Teen Titans. And I, I don't know him well, but he's one of the kindest, funniest, just greatest guys to work with. And I absolutely believe he would burn your fucking house down. <laughs> that video was legendary i think he took it down he did he took it down but until he took it down it was just a, i mean i i probably watched it 50 times and and had tears in my eyes every time well and i mean the incredible impassioned speech that fran drescher gave the the day yes. that they declared their strike she did such a good job conveying what I think everybody who's been inside a negotiation has had to confront, like, because like, I love this business. I love my job. I love the people that I work with. I even love the people who give me notes because sometimes those notes help and also they're nice people. Um, but then you get in the room of a negotiation for the contract for people like you, for your union contract in this business that you love, that you've given your life to. And you see that the people sitting across the table not only don't want to pay you what they're already paying you, but they want to take it away. They want to grind you down. They don't like you. They don't respect you, which, fuck it, I don't need any of that. But they actively hate you. Like, they actively, maybe hate's too strong a word, but there is a profound, profound resentment 
yes. of organized labor and of the fact that we would dare. I mean, the, the, the SAG after negotiation ended with Carol Lombardini calling them uncivilized. Because what? Because they stood up for themselves? I'm pretty sure that's how most civilizations got started. <laughs> you know, so it's just, but yeah, it's, it's, it, it's, it's a lot of, you know, David Young, who's the executive director of the Writers Guild, he's on medical leave right now, but he, uh, when we were in our agency campaign, uh, he explained it this way, you know, and, and it, it speaks to the difference between an individual negotiation, which writers and actors are very familiar with, and a collective bargaining negotiation, right? In, in an individual negotiation, you know, I've sold them a show or they want to hire me to write on a show. I want to work for them. They want me to work for them. Everybody's happy. And the Venn diagram is two kind of overlapping circles, right? And we're just arguing about what goes in that little oval in the center. You know, what title do I get? How much do I get paid? Happy, happy, happy. It's pretty calm. In a labor negotiation over something major like, you know, AI or um, a proportionate increase in initial pay or streaming residuals or the way that our agencies uh, were doing business with these packaging fee deals. The Venn diagram is two circles and they're not maybe even on the same piece of paper. And what you're fighting over is who's going to come over into whose circle. It's not about meeting in the middle because... I don't think either side can accomplish their goals by giving up what they'd have to, to meet in the middle. It's about who's going to come over into whose circle and negotiate on those terms. And in the case of the agencies, we held out for two and a half years and one by one, every agency came over and negotiated on our terms. And now that's, you know, done. We won. That's, well, you, you know, you've, you've, you fired what? 8,000 writers fired their agents. Yeah. Fired uh, agents. Wow. yeah. Yeah. yeah, we all fired our agents. They, it was crazy. They didn't think we were going to do it, um, <laughs> uh, and they were like, "Wait, what?" Um, uh, and you know, some 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 agencies, you know, figured it out and made deals pretty quickly. Others took a very very long time. Um, but you know, we won the whole thing in packaging fee deals, which was a system where the agencies were taking these large direct payments from the people they were supposed to be negotiating with, rather than ten percent of what their clients make. That system is done. There are still some shows paying, but it will phase out over time. And we're in a that would be situation. like the club that yeah. I'm negotiating a contract with on behalf of my hockey player client, also paying me a fee yes. for the negotiation. Oh, and and, and that I used to happen in hockey and in all sports. Yeah. Uh, in hockey, it happened until 1995, and, and, and in the 1994-95 lockout, Bob Goodnow. The executive director of the NHLPA said, no more, yeah. no more are teams going to be paying agents for the fee because yeah. it's a just it's just such a blatant a and direct conflict of interest. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's crazy because they were not only were they getting money directly from the studios. Part of the deal on that was that they wouldn't take 10 percent from their clients. So their clients weren't even paying them. They were only getting paid by the studios and huge amounts of money um, that, that they were getting paid. And it, it's funny because like you, you talk to like a lawyer who works in the entertainment industry about it before we, you know, took this fight on and they're like, that's just the way the business works. There's nothing you can do to change it. You talk to a lawyer outside the business and they're like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> that's a massive, massive breach of, because agents are fiduciaries. They have a fiduciary right, yes. duty. So it was a huge, yeah. huge problem. But so anyway, so we held together for two and a half years and we fixed that. 
And it's because we got them to come into our circle. And it's a similar thing right now. And, you know, I have every faith in this incarnation of the Writers Guild, the people that I'm walking a picket line with. I've never seen determination like it in my life. You know, like in, in, in 2017, when we were talking about going on strike in 2007, when we were on strike, go to union meetings and there'd be people saying, this is, isn't this crazy? Shouldn't we give up? Isn't this dumb? And there, there may be some people out there feeling that way and my heart goes out to them. But most people that I talk to are like, yeah, no, fuck it. We'll do whatever it takes to win. Um, and which is pretty great. Um, you know, wish we didn't have to go through this, but, uh, you know, I've never had a doubt in my mind that we're going to get the studios over into our circle and negotiating off our terms and we're going to get what we need. We're not going to get everything, but, um, we're going to get what we need, um, because we have to, that's, that's why it's a need, you know, they're, you know, they're fighting for things that they want which is a slightly higher profit margin on one section of their labor costs. It's a huge, huge, they're losing billions doing this billions. It's genuinely like, I don't know how the people in charge uh, on their side keep their jobs when this is done. Cause like the smart cheap way through this was to find the WGA's bottom line by right. moving your asks up and find the lowest possible deal that we would have to take. And I, I don't know what the numbers were and on which asks, but I guarantee you there was a shitty deal that we would have had to take. We would have been like, well, fuck. If it's close we, enough. If it's we close enough. This, that, if we don't yeah. take this, half our members aren't going to want to go out on strike over it. And if we do, the other half are going to hate us for taking it. That's what they should have done. They didn't even make in our negotiations an effort to find that. Like the the board members that I know re, across the board and negotiating committee members expressed surprise that like, well, they made it an easy choice because they didn't even try. They didn't even try to find our bottom line. Instead, they chose a path that's cost them, uh, you know, right on the heels of Barbie and Oppenheimer. What do you got next? <laughs> You know, like literally the theater business, the movie theater business, which has been struggling through COVID is coming back and they're shutting down the pipeline over what? Pride, arrogance, a few tiny percentage points, you know, like how is that good business strategy? I mean, I, you know, I got a BFA in theater studies and if I get this shit, how do these guys with MBAs not realize that like, well, sometimes things just cost money and you got to pay for it. You know, you just can't grind everybody until they lose their house. So, right. you know, it's uh, it's some really poor decision making on the part of the studios. It's something I mean, you know, they could call us and end this tomorrow. You know, it's and it, and it wouldn't have to be complete capitulation on their part, but they've got to put the needs of their company and the needs of their shareholder and the needs of the long-term survival of their company, and by the way, their own job security ahead of their ego. Because at the end of the day, I think that's all this is, is just how dare you, you know? I'm, you know. Do you know who we are? Yeah. Do no, you know how I, much money we've made? And who are you to tell us anything? Yeah, I'm some yeah. guy who writes, you know, network mostly crime procedurals you know I'll, all i do all day is figure out how to kill people and then figure out how to catch myself that's it <laughs> you know like and i'm from you know i'm from middle class family in texas and i went to theater school like you know who the fuck am i and who the fuck are any of my you know cohorts 
to, and, and that's the thing is ultimately, and this is where I think it speaks to not just this industry, but every industry in America right now, it's about social class. You know, we have, we have a class of people who have been able to amass so much money, who, by the way, across the board, got a lot richer during the pandemic, while most of us were suffering. Um, they've got so much money that they don't view us as their equals in a country that is founded on the precept that we are all equal. Um, and strikes suck, but they're one of the only tools we have to remind them. So, well, we got to say, uh, we wish you the very best of luck with it. I know it's been long and protracted, um, but, uh, it's, it's hard not to, uh, empathize with root for, I don't know what the right word is, but, uh, I'll take it. it, it Oh, that's good. Yeah. (laughs) It's yeah. No, I, I so appreciate you guys having me on and cause it's all the, it's, I'm really, really struck by how it's all the same thing. And, and there are, you know, you know, there are dividing things, you know, people in different industries look at like, well, what is, what, what do I have in common with an actor or a writer or a, you know, hockey player whose name's up on a big, you know, marquee, you know, like, or whatever the, what's jumbotron couldn't think of the word. Um, you know, what do I have in common with those people? And what you have in common is that we're all labor. We're all labor. Yeah. Well, we'll wrap it up there, David. Thank you so much for joining us, for giving us your time, for being uh, as candid as you possibly can be. And uh, we wish you, like I said, the very, very best going forward through this. Thank you so much. It's uh, lovely to meet both of you, Adam, Alan. I really appreciate it. Take care. Uh, David, I'm going to be honored to one day join you out on the picket line and uh, bring some extra water and maybe uh, a dozen yeah. pizzas and, uh, and, and be there and join you in solidarity. Thank you. All Person right. of interest was awesome. Just throwing that out there. Oh, yeah. thank you. Thank you. I love <laughs> that show. Yeah, we, I could do an hour on that too. <laughs> this has been Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wild. Powered by Sports Interaction. Want to bet? Follow Alan Walsh on Twitter at Walsh A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching Agent Provocateur and hitting the subscribe button. YouTube.com slash SDPN. 